everybody, it's Drags. It's Wednesday, April 3rd, time for episode 292 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com and follow us, of course, on Twitter at Patriots CLNS. Want to welcome Mark Schofield of Inside the Pylon. He also does some great work for Pro Football Weekly and patspulpit.com, among others. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. It's all one word, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Welcome, Mark. How are you? I'm fantastic, Kratz. Great to be with you. Excited to talk to you about the Pats and whatever else comes to mind. Um, yeah, you know what? We'll, we're going to get to that right off the bat. Mark, you've had a fascinating background and someone I've wanted to have on the pod for a long, long time. I'm going to read from your bio on InsideThePylon.com. Oh, boy. Here we go. Mark is a reformed lawyer who is excited to work on something more important than two insurance companies fighting over money, football. He graduated from Wesleyan University where he was a four-year letter winner as a quarterback and a situational wide receiver. First question, Mark. Ever crossed paths and spoken to another rather distinguished alum of Westland? I have not, and I do get that question a lot. And, I, and I've told people that on sort of the the triumph or the, the Mount Rushmore of Wesleyan grads in the football world. I mean, I think obviously you have Bill Belichick. You probably put Eric Mangini on there. You put Field Yates on there. Obviously, he's gone yep. on to do great work with ESPN. Sure. And if there is a fourth spot, I think it might be me. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being fourth on that list after Belichick, Mangini, and Field Yates. And never got a chance to interact with Big Bill. Um, I will tell you when we were at Wesleyan, though, we would do a pursuit angle drill that was named after Eric Mangini. There was also a punt return drill where you had to catch the ball, hold one ball on your hand, and keep catching others that apparently Mangini had set some sort of record on. And so while I was at school, people sort of – viewed Mangini as a god and so but I did never get to meet him but I'm happy to be fourth on that sort of list yeah you know what that's uh, not all bad I, I, I do remember that though um, when Mangini was with the Patriots and of course when he moved on to the Jets uh, and later the Browns um, that he he had quite the uh, reverent um, or very highly distinguished reputation at Westland I mean it was no joke no, I mean, he was looked at as a, just a fantastic player. And like I said, we did two different drills sort of about Eric Mangini. People always spoke, thought the world of him, spoke very highly of him. And so, you know, Wesleyan alums, we were overjoyed when we were like, whoa, we've got two Wesleyan guys out of 32 head coaches in the NFL. That's, that's not bad. And, you know, to say that, look, the greatest coach of all time is another West alum, you know, we feel pretty good about that. Obviously, you love football, and we're speaking with Mark Schofield of Inside the Pylon, and you're quite, uh, you have quite the background, and you know, I, I can relate, Mark, because I was an electrical engineer at Villanova University, and you know, I was blessed to be, to, to see the first national championship in 85, oh. and I got a minor in communications, and people always ask me, how did you get from electrical engineering into becoming a sports columnist for almost three decades. And I, I tell them, I just followed my passion and I took my minor and and I decided to make my minor my career major, if you will. And I guess that's kind of the same with you, no? Yeah, I mean, it's a somewhat similar path. I mean, I went the Wesleyan route, the law school route, and I obviously don't regret any of that. It put me on a path 
to where I am right now. But after, you know, roughly a decade of practice in law here in the DC area, I realized that litigation, the high pressures that come with that wasn't really best for me. And so I took a moment to sort of re, reevaluate where I was personally and professionally and with my family and everything. And I just kept coming back to the fact that, look, in my spare time, I would go on Sons of Sam Horn, that Patriots message board, and write for hours, breaking down plays, breaking down Pats games, breaking down passing concepts. And I was like, look, I love doing this. Why don't I try to do that? And it was around that time that some other people that were doing similar things on Sons of Sam Horn, we thought – Why don't we try this? And so that was where sort of inside the pylon was born. And we've – some of us have moved on from it. Some of us have moved on from inside the pylon to other sites. And it's kind of parlayed into a new career for me. And it's one of those beauties, tracks of the day and age that we live in where if you have this kind of passion, whether it's writing about football or whatever, you can just sort of start doing it. And if the work is good and if people like what you're doing – you can get found and discovered via Twitter or other avenues, and you can turn it into something more. All right. Let's get into the business at hand at the end of this month in Nashville, namely the draft. And the best players who might be gone quickly and those who might be there for the Patriots at 32 if they don't draft up or down for that matter. We know Bill Belichick likes to stockpile um, picks and uh, get the proper value back in return. Uh, where do you see them going at 32? It's, it's sort of the million dollar question right now, right? I mean, you could see them. I think the conventional wisdom is they're going to address tight end. And even before the Gronkowski retirement, I thought that, you know, this might be a position, this might be a draft with the 12 picks. They're not going to use all of them. We probably know that, right. but they might still double dip at the tight end position because you're worried about Gronkowski's. He's angling about retirement. He had talked about it after the last Super Bowl. And so you might have wanted to hedge against that. It's a very good, very deep tight end draft. So you might want to take advantage of that. So I thought that they might double dip anyway. And I think they'll definitely do that now with Gronkowski's retirement. And so I expect them to go tight end relatively early. That does seem to be the conventional wisdom. Maybe one of the Iowa guys falls or falls to a point where they're comfortable enough to go get him. Um, maybe Irv Smith at 32, although that might be a little rich for him. Maybe they save that for 56 or somehow 64 if he falls. I think tight end is a position they'll definitely consider. Defensive line, whether it's interior or edge, might be another position they look at. A lot of people have looked at, say, Christian Wilkins, the kid from Clemson, Jerry Tillery, the kid from North Notre Dame. Jeremy Simmons is a name that we've seen linked to be a medical redshirt, but a top 15 talent, has some off-the-field issues, but I think people are kind of okay generally with what happened in that situation. And so if he is there at 32, you're getting a top 15 talent. Yes, it's a red shirt, but you hard to overlook the value there. And so I think tight end, I think defensive line, whether it's edge or interior, makes some sense. That being said, though, look, we know Bill Belichick, he'll zig when everybody else zags. And I got to say, when I saw Charles Davis put out a mock today that had Dalton Risner, offensive lineman from Kansas State at 32, I thought – you know, I, I wouldn't do it, but that would be a Belichick-type move to go well, sort of against the, the grain. Here's the thing, and you know this, Mark, as well as anybody, and it's the f- first bit of advice he told Ozzie Newsome when Ozzie, um, you know, took over the uh, job with the Baltimore Ravens um, and what he taught Ozzie Newsome, and it was in those pro football uh, – in those uh, – a football life. Right. And that is 
um, follow the board and yeah. stick to the board. And that simply means whoever you have on your big board rated as the best value, highest rated player, when you select, you go with that player. And that's where I think, you know, all of these mock drafts and even us talking back and forth, you know, do, do they go with a uh, tight end? Do they go with an eggs rush uh, specialist to try and maybe uh, fill the void left by the departure of Trey Flowers? That's not the way he thinks. And that's not the way the Patriots have ever gone about the draft. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, this is sort of what Charles Davison's put in that mock when he talked about Risner was, look, you're getting the guy that can play all the positions up front. He played guard, tackle, and center at Kansas State. And yes, it's not the need. And we always sort of on the outside look at it and look at, okay, what does a team need and how are they going to address it? And need is just a part of the equation. You know, there's value and there's also future needs. And Belichick is one of a handful, I'd say, of general managers, you know, decision makers. Howie Roseman, I think, is another that think a year or two or three down the road. And so what we on the outside identify as glaring needs and holes right now, tight end, wide receiver perhaps, may not be needs in the future, but other positions might crop up. And so if a a player comes across on the board when you're on the clock and he's the highest player you have graded on your board – and you might need that position a year or two down the road, then you draft that player because you will need him eventually. You know, you look at how they move on from guys, Trey Flowers and Trent Brown, recent examples. There might be guys a year or two down the road, whether it's a safety position or elsewhere, linebacker or elsewhere, that might they might need to address. And so need is a rolling basis. It's a rolling evaluation process. And so, yes, we identify the immediate needs, but there are always needs all over the field. Well, and the other thing is, uh, when you talk about Bill Belichick or uh, anybody else around the NFL who has that luxury, that's a special privilege because so many GMs and head coaches, obviously, are in a win-now mode. To be able to think ahead um, takes, I want to say, uh, takes a lot of balls, but it, it, it also takes the assurance from the uh, front office that you're going to get time to build a roster the right way. Right. Not every, you know, general manager, decision maker type has that kind of luxury. You know, you look around the league right now and there are probably, I'd say, anywhere from 20 to 25 franchises that it's win now or you're probably on the hot seat or if not fired, you know, at the end of the season or even earlier. And so Belichick, because of the success that he's brought to New England, six Super Bowl titles and the rest, he has that luxury. And the plan has worked. The philosophy has worked. The think a year or two ahead of schedule has worked. Moving on from guys that are due a payday, big payday, has worked for them. And so it affords them the opportunity to, if you're in the second round or you like this slot corner, go draft Duke Dawson. Everybody says you need to get a athletic at the second level, but you really like this Juwan Bentley guy and you've seen him on tape and you like what he can do, draft him instead. People will clamor about it at the time, but then when they get to see him on the field and realize that there's more behind him than just this two-down thumper type that a lot of people tagged him as, it's going to work out. And so with 12 picks at their disposal too, there's a lot of different directions that they can go. And so I'm really excited to see how this draft comes together because they could go in a number of different directions. Okay. Which, I'm going to ask you kind of a two-pronged question here. What has to happen for the Patriots to draft a quarterback with that first pick and 
which quarterback makes the most sense for the Patriots to pick at 32 if he falls that far? Daniel Jones, Drew Locke, or maybe somebody really outside the box like a Will Greer? I mean, I think if I'm not high on Daniel Jones, I mean, of, you know, I've got, you know, 10 quarterbacks that I've kind of ranked here. Jones is like QB6 for me. And I'm not that high on him. I think that there's a scheme limitation to him. I think he's best sort of in a West Coast quick game type offense. Now, that being said, if he's there at 32, I think you do have to give it serious consideration because you look at what New England does offensively, and we all know, look, they'd like to focus on the quick game, short, intermediate throws, take some scheme shots downfield when the opportunity presents itself. But I think that there is some of what Daniel Jones does as a quarterback that would work in New England. And so while I'm not personally high on him, I could see it working. And I'm kind of comfortable with if he's there at 32 and they've identified traits in him that they think will mesh well with what they do offensively, then I'm okay with it. If they go sort of into, say, 56, I think that's more the Will Greer or Jared Stidham range. Those are two names that I would be Yep, I was just looking at Jared Stidham, not to interrupt you. Yeah, not no. to interrupt you, but looking at Jared Stidham, um, when you see six two, 218, um, his hand is 9.38 inches, um, and he completed 61% of his uh, passes uh, last season with 18 touchdowns. He did have five picks. But it just seems like, you know, that kind of quarterback, um, you know, is the kind of guy, the size uh, that the Patriots would kind of look for. I want to kind of go up, digress a little bit here and ask you what you think um, of uh, Danny Etling. And was that just a stash to have as maybe Brian Hoyer's backup if, you know, Brian Hoyer leaves? Yeah, I think that was more a stash and see than a this is a diamond in the rough type guy that nobody knows about. I mean, I haven't studied him last year. There are some things that he does that are okay. I mean, play action throws, deep balls off of play action, back to the defense type moments where you've got to come up, pick up what the secondary is doing while you have your back to them and make a throw and a read. He does some of that a well, but there. There's not a lot beyond that. And obviously, look, LSU's offense, it's tough to really scout a quarterback, at least the offense that they were running while he was there. But I think that's more a, look, we can get a guy that if Hoyer leaves or something happens to him strangely, we've at least got backup for him, like you said. Uh, Tyree Jackson, fascinating name. Um, I'm not saying the Patriots would necessarily be interested in him, but he is six seven, uh, almost two hundred and forty nine pounds, and just got a gun, right? Yeah, I mean, this was one of those moments. You know, you go down to the Senior Bowl, you walk into the stadium. Now, I never get there in time for the weigh-ins, and the weigh-ins are a little strange and awkward anyway. It's just a strange little environment. Yeah. You know, you're just watching guys on a stage where not a lot. It's just weird. So I never go for that, but I always get there in time for the first practice and the media day portion and all that. And you walk out to that field at Lad People Stadium and instantly you see this man is every bit of six seven. He is as advertised, a massive human being. But then he starts throwing. And you sit there in the end zone and you see him warm up in front of you and the ball just explodes out of his hand. I mean, he has a tremendous arm. And what's interesting about Jackson is that for a tall quarterback, he sometimes has this issue where that front leg locks up a bit. It's a mechanical thing that taller quarterbacks sometimes have to fight through and deal with. Even that, 
which sometimes hinders velocity and ball placement, he still can generate velocity on throws. He will make some throws. He had a throw against Eastern, Eastern Michigan where he's blitzed, flushed to his left. Two guys hit him, thrown against his grain, against his dominant hand, and uncorks like a 55, 60-yard strike for a touchdown. And it's one of those moments where you're just – you're watching it. You put the pen down and you're like, I don't know – who can make this work? But somebody can make this work in the NFL, right? Because this is just tremendous talent. Now, that being said, he is more of the developmental guy. There are things you need to clean up with him. But for a team like New England that, look, they don't need a guy to play right away, obviously. Right. Uh, right. They've got CP12. They've got some years to play with. They might have another three years to play with if Tom wants to play as long as he thinks he can. And so – Tyree Jackson might be that kind of guy where if you get into that, say, you know, round three range, they've got three picks in the third. Jackson would probably come off the board, I'd say, sometime on day two. But if he's there, I would be completely fine with taking a pick on Tyree Jackson. I think there's a lot to work with. And also, look, we all remember the Super Bowl. Hoss wide juke three straight times. You watch Buffalo. They were running that a ton. He had a touchdown throw on Rutgers where he – through that seam route, it was an absolute laser drags. And I just watched that. I'm like, he's running New England's office and he's throwing bullets out there. This is amazing stuff to watch. And so if he finds his way to New England, I'm completely happy with that. Okay, let's remind people, speaking with Mark Schofield of Inside the Pylon, he also does great work for Pro Football Weekly, and I'm sure a lot of Patriots fans have read his work uh, many, many times on patspulpit.com. Uh, uh, Mark, you're a former quarterback at Westland, and what I found fascinating was something that you wrote back in December of 2015. Decision making doesn't happen in a vacuum. Do you remember this, uh, Colin? I do. I do. I do, Trax. Yeah. And I remember that one well. When I read this, I'm like, good God, how are, how does any quarterback function when you think about Sky, get up, uh, trade, 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 weak right light, uh, weak right lion, X585, and then all of the things that goes through a quarterback's mind, uh, when you're reading defenses in, let's say, the, uh, I don't know, five to eight seconds, or maybe ten seconds it takes, uh, to call the play and call the coverages. How does anybody do it? I don't know. And, you know, I've often joked that, you know, the toughest thing in sports to do is play quarterback and the second toughest thing in sports media or the sports world to do is to evaluate quarterbacks because there's just so much that goes into just a single play. And, you know, I'm writing up Brett Rippin right now for a couple of different sites, including Pat's Pulpit. And, you know, when I talk about Rippin, for example, I do want people to remember that with many other positions, almost every other position, you know, when you're looking at a player, evaluating a player, it is a snap to whistle process, right? You see them at the start of the play. Do they win at the snap? Do they win at the line? How do they execute the play? Do they play through the whistle, right? It's different for a quarterback because the job begins when you break the huddle, when you get to the line of scrimmage, if you're not, if you're going up tempo, because you've got to, read and react to the defense in the pre-snap phase. You've got to make sure that if you have to make adjustments that you've made them. Maybe it's coming from the sideline, maybe not. But some quarterbacks get it from the sidelines. Others, like Rippon, like Finley, like a handful of others, do it on their own. You know, Are they executing and perhaps winning in that pre-snap phase of the play? Because we all get to watch Tom Brady, perhaps the best, maybe next to Peyton Manning ever, to execute at the pre-snap phase of the play, to move guys around, to make out calls and audibles and things like that. And it's incredibly difficult when it's on your shoulders. And that's why 
you know, when we talk about some of these quarterbacks, that's why I think guys like a Ryan Finley or a Brett Rippon will get drafted earlier than people might expect because they have that experience. But it's incredibly difficult. And remember, they're all doing this while 11 guys on the other side of the ball want to physically cause them harm. And so you're trying to do all of this. And as I wrote in the piece, like I kind of put in there that you're shaking off a hit from the previous play and you take another shot on this play and, you know, you've got the physical wear and tear of playing the position that goes along with all the stuff you have to do mentally where you're responsible for the other 10 guys and their assignments. You're trying to read the defense and down to whether a guy in the secondary sort of shifts his weight suddenly. You're wondering, oh, are they going to spin the safeties here or is this guy going to blitz now? So there's so much that goes into it on a single given play that, again, it, I I do think it's the hardest thing to do in sports, which is play the quarterback position because of everything that goes into just a single snap of the football. Brett Rippon's uh, background, uh, he's at Boy, he plays for Boise State for those who uh, here in New England who may not uh, follow him closely. Son of Mark, correct? Nephew. Uh, Nephew of, of yep. Mark Rippon, the former Redskin, uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, I might add. Um, Rippon's numbers, uh, 67% completion in 2018 for 3,700 yards, 3,705 to be exact, 30 touchdowns and seven picks. And, um, what I'm reading here, he had a very solid week of practice at the East West Shrine. Why is he projected so late? You know, Trax, it's, this is like, the question I am most interested to find out the answer to when this draft finally comes, because for me, he's QB4. For others, Matt Waldman just released his rookie scouting portfolio. He's QB4. Others, like the guys over the draft network, QB4, QB5 kind of range. There are people, sort of the outside evaluators in the more media world, that really like this kid. But then you look at, say, the fact he didn't get a senior bowl invite. The fact that he was one of the throwing quarterbacks at the combine, which those typically go to the non, you know, early selection type guys. You look at people that have been around the league. For example, Greg Gabriel, who was a director of college scouting with the Bears for nine, ten years. Now he's over at Pro Football Weekly. He does all the scouting reports for our draft magazine. He has, talks about team quarterbacks in the chapter on quarterbacks, but doesn't even list Rippin. And so there seems to be this huge gulf with how the league views him and how everybody on the outside like myself view him. I think part of it is there is still a lingering question about arm strength. I know he hit 50 miles, 59 on the gun at Indianapolis. You take that with a grain of salt. You do see at times on film, I think he hits the threshold. I think I don't have any concerns with his velocity. NFL decision makers might point to some other throws and say, no, this one here I'm a little wary of. There's a size issue. He's got nine inch hands and Typically, I know hand size, QB hand size day on Twitter is, is a bit humorous in a sense. Yeah. But, but with him, you know, both him and Drew Locke measured it at nine inch hands. Now, when you, you have Drew, when you have Drew yeah. Locke, I went back, I looked at his game against Arkansas, his final, you know, regular season game. It was in cold, wet, rainy conditions and he played fine. But then you look at Brett Rippett in that Mountain West Championship game, cold, wet, rainy, snowy. There's an awkward fumble. There are other times when he's sort of hit in the pocket and it's not a lot of contact, but he loses the ball. And you do wonder if that's going to be an issue with him. And he's made some mistakes and bad interceptions. There are times where he'll throw a pick and it takes him a drive or two to get back on track. And so I think there are some issues with him. Again, I'm high on him, but I could see why others might look at him and say, I just don't see it. You know, maybe seventh round UDFA type, but I don't see him QB4 or anything like that. You uh, do write for Big Blue View, right? Uh, I do. Covering the Giants. So you know what I'm going to ask you, right? I do. 
quarterback. Are they going to trade up to let's, you know, I saw one mock where they trade up, uh, to get the Jets pick and take a quarterback and take Dwayne Haskins. Is that a realistic possibility? I would be stunned. Um, from both from sort of reading in between the lines with some of what Dave Gettleman and Pat Schumer have been saying, seeing Gettleman's history as a general manager, seeing how they've sort of handled this quarterback position. Now, their recent love affair with Eli Manning could be the greatest smokescreen of all time. I mean, they're out there now telling us that he could be our quarterback in 2020. You know, maybe it is just a smokescreen, but I do think that their plan, if I were to venture a, you know, put money on it right now, they draft a position of need at six. They think about quarterback at 17. If Daniel Jones is there, maybe they pull the trigger on him because, look, there's the Cutcliffe relationship with Eli Manning. I think they sort of trust how Cutcliffe sort of develops quarterback. So I think they do like Daniel Jones. Maybe they trade 17 for Rosen. That is still a possibility, I think. Or, and this will, I mean, this is one of those you want to be on Twitter for when it happens kind of situations they pass on qb at 6 and 17 and draft somebody at 37 you know and (laughs) that might be a will greer you know jared stidham type of moment but they might go that route because they might say look if we don't get our guy or maybe we just don't even have a guy in this class or maybe our guy's jones but somebody gets in front of us to get him then look we'll write it out with eli we'll draft a guy of value at say 37 and maybe see what he can do and then if it doesn't pan out, either of those guys will have probably had bad enough a year that we can draft Tua or Herbert or whomever next year. So, it, it, you know, sitting here right now, I wouldn't be surprised if it, it, they make a pick, but it's at 37. Back to the Patriots. Do you think there's any chance, Mark, um, that the Patriots go ahead and make the bold move and trade for Josh Rosen and uh, that possibility you know, materializes in the draft or before the draft? You know, if it were me, and it does seem like Kyler Murray is locked in at one-on-one and Arizona will move on from Josh Rosen. And if so, if that is indeed the situation, all all of the 31 general managers should be on the phone because you're getting a rookie quarterback on his rookie deal for $6.2 million over the next three years. I mean, that's nothing. I mean, that's almost like kicker money, for example. And <laughs> right. so – yeah, I mean, we're talking about, I was just looking at Gostowski's salary over the past couple of years to think about what they're going to do with him. And so that it's kicker money. And so, yes, Rosen struggled down the stretch. But you look, he was playing behind a patchwork offensive line. He was playing with a collection of wide receivers that weren't that great to begin with. And yes, he struggled down the stretch. But you look at his first start against Seattle, the game he had against the Packers, there were still flashes of, yes, this is a first round top 10 type quarterback. And so you get a kind of guy like that on a cheap deal. Even if you don't need to play him right away like the Patriots, you can groom him for a year or two. And worst case scenario, something, God forbid, happens to Tom Brady next year. He's a better backup than Brian Hoyer would be. And so, yeah, I I think if Rosen is indeed on the block and the Patriots want to go get him, I'm fine with them shipping a third rounder, a second rounder. I would be fine with them shipping 32 if it took that much. Because, again, think about how we started this conversation, tracks, planning for the future. And we're all sort of wondering when they're going to get the next guy, you know, to replace Tom Brady. Not that you can replace a guy like that, but somebody has to take the snaps. And I think Josh Rosen is a pretty good selection to do that. What are you going to be doing, Mark, between uh, now and April 25th, the first day of the draft in Nashville? I am going to be squeezing out every last drop of content I can, whether it's at Pat's Pulpit or Big Blue View or elsewhere on this quarterback class. And then I can finally 
put this group to bed because Trags, as you can probably imagine, it's been an interesting quarterback class to discuss. I'll just kind of let you decipher what I exactly mean by that. But it's been a – after last year's group of five guys in the first round, it's quite a difference. And then, look, let's face it. Once this draft is put to bed, I think we all know what guys like me are going to start doing. We're going to take the Tua tape. We're going to take the Justin Herbert tape, and we're going to start diving into that because draft season literally just does not end. Right. I, I, I was just going to say that. It never does end. It's 24-7, 365, and year after year after year. I'm curious to see, as somebody, uh, A, from uh, the state of Ohio, uh, who's followed Dwayne Haskins, and, you know, the, the year that he had, the production was um, unprecedented, obviously, in Ohio State history. Um, what kind of NFL quarterback he's going to be. And, you know, I know there are people in Cincinnati clamoring to move up from, I think it's 11, uh, yep. and maybe get the Jets pick at 6. And if he, I don't even know if he'll be available then. I think he might be. Um, and I just curious to get your read on what kind of quarterback he would make. I think he would be, a, I think he's going to be a good NFL quarterback with the potential to be very good to grade. And one of the things that stands out about Dwayne Haskins is, you know, so many times when you're talking about quarterbacks and evaluating them, it's, does the process matter or does, do the results matter? And with Haskins, if you're a person that favors the process a quarterback implements on a given play, you love this kid. Because similar to what I was talking about with Rippin and Findlay and doing stuff with the line of scrimmage, that's Dwayne Haskins. You know, you watch that Purdue game, and yes, they lost that game, but I love watching games where a quarterback struggles or a quarterback loses, like that yep. that Penn State game where literally tracks at halftime. I remember watching that game live. I thought that Urban Meyer was going to have to pull him because I thought, look, this kid is struggling. He's missing wide open throws. He can't handle pressure at all, but he fought through it. And that matters because you're going to face those moments of adversity as a quarterback and whether you can get through them or not de- determines who you are. I mean, 28 to 3, Patriots fans should know like you need a quarterback that can fight through adversity. And so Haskins could do that. That Purdue game, they're losing. They're down two scores in the fourth quarter. It's a fourth and eight. They show all out blitz. He brings the tight end in. And he makes the adjustments. Then they drop. And so now he's going to think on the fly. He throws a dart on a post route to the backside receiver for a touchdown. I'm like, look, that's a NFL type moment where you get something, you adjust pre-snap, they give you a completely different look. You have to change what you're doing and you do it on the fly and throw a strike. That's NFL stuff. And so I think the upside of Murray is, you know, allowed me and others to make Murray QB one, but Haskins is a, a clear cut QB two in this club, in this class. And I, I think he's going to have a great NFL career. And I think the Cincinnati Bengals would be an ideal situation for him because they can give it one more ride with Dalton and then turn it over to a guy that obviously has had some pretty good success in the state of Ohio. Uh, I got to ask you this also, Kyler Murray and Pat Mahomes, are, are the similarities there? I mean, I, somewhat. The, they both have that ability to make those off-structure, off-platform, any arm slot type of throws that the baseball background provide them. I mean, both guys were middle infielders in high school, yep. you know, Murray got moved to the outfield to play at Oklahoma, but you see that throw against Alabama where he's basically on a dead sprint towards the line of scrimmage and at the last second, both feet in the air, just flicks it and it's 50 yards downfield for a strike on a touchdown on a post route. I mean, that's stuff you can't teach and that's stuff that Mahomes is doing. And obviously there's a similarity in the offenses that they ran in college. They played in that sort of wide open air raid type system. Now, I think Mahomes is the better all around quarterback, but Murray is a fantastic QB and has tremendous arm talent as well. And so two very good quarterbacks. There are definitely some similarities. 
If you are not reading Mark Schofield uh, at Inside the Pylon or Pat's Pulpit, um, you're not prepared for the NFL draft. What else can I tell you? He does a phenomenal job. I want to thank everybody for downloading today's podcast. want to thank our great guest, Mark Schofield of Inside the Pylon and Pat's Pulpit. Uh, Mark, your Twitter, once again, I want to make sure I have this right, all one word, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Correct? That, that's exactly right, my friend. All right, Mark. I really appreciate the time. Terrific stuff. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Huge fan of what you guys are doing over there and all the work you guys are doing covering the bats. Just tremendous stuff and just honored to be on with you, my friend. You got it. For producer Michael Angie and the founder of the network, Nick Gelso, this is Mike Petralia, and this has been the Patriots Beat Podcast, powered by CLNS Media. Hello, I'm Dan Lothian, host of the Behind the Media podcast on the CLNS Media Network. Along with Jimmy Young, we dive into the biggest media headlines each week with honest, informed, and sometimes irreverent perspectives. It's not all serious. We deliver information and entertainment. As we like to say on Behind the Media, we find the interesting in media so you don't have to go searching for it. Listen to our podcast and get prepped for the next trip to the water cooler. Subscribe to Behind the Media wherever you get your podcast. Or find us on www.clnsmedia.com.